Most of you will recall that in our study of this great epistle to the Romans, we have arrived at chapter 6 and are dealing with verses 10 and 11. Let me read again from verse 8 to verse 11. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, which means once and forever. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, last Friday evening, we had to leave off halfway through verse 10. I had been indicating that verses 8, 9, and 10 refer exclusively to our Lord himself. have nothing to do with us. They are telling us what happened to him and what is true of him as the result of those happenings. And uh, we saw that uh, it is, in a sense, summed up in this tenth verse, which is the explanation. It tells us that in that he died, he died unto sin once. In other words, we saw that it meant this, that he rarely has finished once and forever his relationship to sin. He had come temporarily into the realm of sin, in order to redeem us. But now, having finished his work, having borne our sins, having received the punishment that the law meted out for our sins, he has fulfilled the law, he has finished the work, and his resurrection is the great standing proof of that. God, in the resurrection of Christ, is announcing that he is satisfied with his work, that his law has been fulfilled. It is a great pronouncement I say to that effect. Very well, says Paul, when he died, he died unto sin. Once. Once and forever. That will never be repeated again. He will never again come under the power of the law. He will never again come under the power or into the realm of sin and death. Now, the epistle to the Hebrews really puts all that very perfectly for us in one verse, which is in chapter 9, verse 28 which reads like this. So, Christ was once, which means once and for all, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin, which means apart from sin, unto salvation. Now, you see, there it is all in one verse. He came the first time when he came as the babe of Bethlehem. He came then, as it were, in the realm of sin, with sin, into this world of sin and under the law. He was made of a woman made under the law. Yes, but he says, unto them that look for him, shall he appear the second time without sin? Well, now, without sin doesn't mean that he himself will be without sin, because he was without sin the first time. 
It isn't any statement with regard to his nature or his character or his being. No, what it means is that the first time he came in connection with sin, in relation to sin, but when he comes the second time, he will come with no such relationship to sin at all, without sin. He will come without sin unto salvation, the final working out of his great salvation. Very well, then. We sum it up by saying that his relationship to sin was only temporary, just for that short period of time. Never again. Because he did once and forever everything that was necessary to deliver his people from their relationship to sin and for death. He is the last Adam. There will never be another. There was the first Adam. He is not the second Adam. He is the last Adam. There's never any need for another. He has done all. It's finished. He said on the cross, it is finished. And it was finished. So he is the last Adam. He died once and for all. And he has finished with sin and death once and forever. Very well. We now then take up this second half of this tenth verse where he turns to the other side and says, But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. He died once. That's one action finished. But he goes on living. He liveth. In that he liveth, he liveth unto God. This is our Lord's condition now. What does this mean? What does he mean when he says that in that he liveth, he liveth unto God? Obviously, this is a most important statement, and in many ways is one of our key statements in the interpretation of the whole of this section that we're looking at, from verse 1 to verse 14. What does it mean, that he liveth unto God? Well, it obviously cannot refer to his obedience to God, because he was always obedient to God. It cannot refer to the type of life he lives, because his life, even when he was here on earth, was a life that was lived entirely to God. No, it has no reference at all to his obedience or his behavior or conduct. Because that has always been a constant. Well then, what does it mean? And you see, this is where it's so important in the matter of interpretation because we are told that what is true of him is true of us. We shall be told in verse 11 that we must reckon ourselves to be alive indeed unto God, even as he is alive and liveth unto God. Well, then what is it? Well, surely there can only be one explanation, and it is this, that he is now living exclusively in the realm of God. In other words, what we've got here in this, in this tenth verse is a contrast. There was once a time when he did come into the realm of sin and death, but he's no longer there. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. He's no longer living in the realm of sin and death and under the power of sin and death. He was there for a while. He is no longer there. Where is he now? Oh, well, no, he is living in this other realm. 
in the realm of the power and the glory of God and that alone. Clearly the second half of the verse is here to present us with a contrast to the statement about him in the first half of the verse so that we can put it like this. Our Lord for a short period of time came out of the realm of glory into this realm of sin and death. It was temporary only. He's no longer there. He's finished with that. Let me elaborate that a little. Yes, I say he came out of the realm of glory into the realm of sin and of death. What do we say about him in that condition? Well, this is what the Bible says about him. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Though he is the eternal Son of God, though he is the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity, he became a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because he had come into the realm of sin and death. He came voluntarily. He humbled himself. He chose to do it, and he came. Yes, and while he was in that condition, as we saw in that fourth chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews just now, he was tempted in all points like as we are. You see, while he was in the realm of glory before the incarnation, he was not only not tempted, he couldn't be tempted. We are told that God neither tempteth any man nor can be tempted. But he came into this other realm and because he had humbled himself and was born under a woman born, made of the law, he has come into a realm where he can be tempted. And he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. Not only that, we look at him we look at him there, standing in that cemetery, outside the grave in which his friend Lazarus had been buried. And I read that he groaned in spirit. You see, he's come into the realm of sin and death, and he groaned in spirit. I go further. That little verse, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. The eternal Son of God, yes, but he wept. He has put himself voluntarily into this realm of sin and of death. And then take that other statement which we have about him, which was in that fifth chapter of Hebrews in verse 7, where we read, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he was a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, you see, that's all a part of it. He's no longer in the realm of glory exclusively. Having become men, having become Jesus, he has entered into this other realm. But I must go further, mustn't I, in order to bring out the meaning of this verse. I look at him there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and again I see the agony, the same groaning, much more intense, 
so intense now that he begins to sweat great drops of blood. He didn't do that at the grave of Lazarus. He did it in the garden. His agony of soul and of spirit was so great that he began to sweat these drops of blood. Oh, but there was something even worse than that. I'm saying all this just for you to see this realm that he's entered into. There he had been from eternity in the bosom of his father. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal. Without any mixture or any change or any variation. That was his eternal condition. But he's come out of that. And here is the climax of what he's entered into. Look at him there upon the cross. And listen to what he says. This is what he says. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, for that brief moment, that fraction of a second, we don't know how long it lasted, but we know this, that there he's in a condition in which he is actually separated from God. The eternal communion that had subsisted between him and his father is broken for a second. For a second, he is outside the realm of God. He says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Ah, because he had come voluntarily into the realm of sin and of death, it meant, I say, that even for that brief passing second, he is entirely cut out of the realm of God and out of communion with his Father. But, says the second half of this tenth verse, that is no longer his condition. In that he died as he did, he died unto sin once. Just that one action, that one fleeting second produced that. But, he says on the other side, in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. What does he mean? Well, it means this. He is now restored to the position where he was before. His prayer that he offered... His great high priestly prayer that is recorded, you remember, in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, and especially in verse 5, has been answered. What was that petition? Here it is. And now he prays to his Father. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now there it is absolutely perfectly. From eternity it had this glory with the Father. Yes, but in order to redeem us, he has put on one side some of the signs and the insignia of that eternal glory. He has humbled himself. He has made himself of no reputation. He has come in the likeness of man, in the form and likeness of sinful flesh. And his glory was veiled and was hidden. But now he realizes he's about to die and to finish the work. So he offers up the petition. Now then, Father, he says, I have completed. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And because I have done so, he goes on, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory that I had with thee before the world was. And that prayer has been answered. He has returned to his pristine glory. 
He has re-entered into the realm and the sphere out of which he'd come. In that he liveth, he liveth unto God. And again, you see, you get a wonderful statement of it in the first chapter of the book of Revelation in verse 18, where he says, appearing to John, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. There it is. I am he that liveth, but I was dead. But behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Or if you like another statement of it. There is a very wonderful statement of it in the epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 1. At the end of the chapter where we read this, the apostle is praying in verse 19 that these Ephesians might know the exceeding greatness of God's power toward them. What is this power? Well, he says it is according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principalities and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and hath given him to be the head of all things, or over all things, to the church. There it is once more. In other words, he is no longer in the realm of sin and death. He is in the realm of God and of glory and of majesty, and there he is again enjoying the glory which he had with his father, and which for the time being he had set aside, as it were, to do this work of redemption, he's enjoying it again in an unbroken manner. And it will never be broken again. In that he died, he died unto sin once. Never anymore. He's back in the glory. In that he liveth, he liveth unto God. And he will. There'll never be another break. There'll never be need for another break. He's done it all there, once and forever. There's no need for any further action. So that when he comes again, he will come in glory, riding on the clouds of heaven, surrounded by his holy angels, the everlasting king, who will come to judge the earth, destroy all evil, set up his kingdom, and reign in glory forever and forever. That's what he's saying. Very well now then. That is this teaching of this tenth verse. Now then, let me sum it up. What is he teaching exactly concerning our Lord? You see, these three verses, 8, 9, and 10, are looking entirely and exclusively at the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I've been doing so already, but let me say it again because it's so wonderful and it's so essential to our interpretation of what's to follow. He has finished with sin and death once and forever. He will never die again. Death hath no more dominion over him. He has conquered death. He's vanquished death. He's taken the sting out of death. His resurrection is the defeat of death. He's finished with it once and forever. And he is now altogether and entirely without limit in the realm of God and his glory, and he ever will be there. His relationship to sin and death was only temporary 
for our sakes, for your sake and mine. And I could stay the rest of the evening there, and I feel tempted to preach to you about that. That is the good news of salvation, that this eternal Son of God came out of the glory once. That is the story, that once he came down on earth to dwell. There was no reason for it but his own grace and mercy and everlasting love. He did it all. He humbled himself and he came into a world like this and put himself into this power of sin and death that you and I might be redeemed and might be reconciled to God. It was a temporary relationship simply for our sakes. But having done it, he's gone back into the glory in that he liveth. He liveth now entirely in the realm of God and no longer in the realm of sin and of death. Very well. That is the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Now then, we can come to verse 11. Listen. Likewise, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves. Likewise. To be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we come to a real turning point in this verse. Now at long last we are coming to the realm of application. Now then we are beginning to do what you impatient ones have been trying to make me do for so long. The realm of application? Yes, but you see, you can't come to the realm of application until you're perfectly clear as to what's got to be applied. That's why the apostle has taken these ten verses to tell us about the Lord. Because he's going to show that what's true of him is true of us. Now then, this is a most important verse, this eleventh verse. Had you realized this? This is literally the first word of exhortation in the epistle to the Romans. We've arrived at chapter 6, verse 11. This is the first word of exhortation. It's been nothing but sheer doctrine up until this point. All five and a half chapters of exposition and of doctrine, you cannot come to application and to practice, to conduct and behavior and experience until you are clear about your doctrine. That's the great lesson we all ought to be learning at this point. So far, we have simply been told, told the truth about ourselves. Now then, he calls upon us to realize the truth that he's been telling us. Up until this point, let me make this clear. We have simply been told the truth about ourselves. Now then, he wants us to lay hold on it, to realize it, and to begin to apply it. He calls upon us, I say, to realize and to reckon these things. Very well. Why is he doing so? Why does he want us to reckon ourselves also to be dead indeed unto sin? Oh, the, the reason is still this. He's answering the objection which he reports and records in verse 1. He's still dealing with these people who said, oh, well, I can see what your teaching is, 
You were teaching of the free grace of God and so on. It just means this. Let us continue in sin that grace may abound. The more we sin, the more grace will be given. Well, let's plunge into sin, therefore. Impossible, says Paul. If you realize the truth of this doctrine, far from saying that, you'll say the exact opposite. You'll see that everything that is taught in this doctrine is to bring you out of sin and to conquer sin and to make sin unthinkable to you. That's what he's doing. Very well. How does he do it? Well, the first thing that he says that is absolutely essential to our being delivered from sin and uh, to realize that we are not to continue in sin, but the exact opposite, the first essential is this, that we should realize the truth about ourselves as it is expounded in this verse, this 11th verse. Nothing, therefore, can be more important for us from every standpoint than to understand exactly what this 11th verse is saying and what it doesn't say. Now then, here it is. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean? Let me try and put it to you like this. There are three principles which we must bear in mind before we come to the details of the statement. Here is principle number one. The apostle is asserting that what is true of the Lord Jesus Christ is also in this respect true of us because we are joined to him. Now, we've seen how at length he's been proving that we are joined to him. He says, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. We've, we've been crucified with him, we've died with him, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like us Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also, we are united to Christ. Well, because we are united to Christ. What is true of him is true of us. You remember the old comparison? We used to be united to Adam. And that's why we are what we are. Adam fell, we fell. Adam sinned, we all sinned with Adam. That's the argument of chapter 5, verse 12 to the end. Now then, we are joined to Christ. And therefore, what is true of him is true of us. Now the two words, likewise, and also, prove that, don't they? Likewise. In a like manner, in the same way, reckon you yourselves also, not only true of him, but also of you, likewise also. There's no answer to that, is there? That's what he's saying, that what is true of Christ is true of us. That's principle number one. Principle number two. The statement in this 11th verse is entirely non-experimental. It has nothing to do with our experience. It is non-experimental. It is non-experiential. Now, the very word reckon, which he uses, proves that once and forever. You can't tell a man to reckon an experience. That would be ridiculous. If he's got the experience, there's nothing to reckon. No, no. The very word reckon settles it 
as does also the parallel, of course, that he's drawing between the Lord and ourselves. The experimental aspect of this whole question only comes in in the next verse. I'm sorry. You've still got to wait until verse 12, you experimentalists. Even yet, you see, you can't get there. The whole tragedy about Christian living is that people will rush to the experimental before they've understood the truth. The experimental is the outcome of an understanding of the doctrine and of the truth. Now, this is entirely non-experimental. The practical, experimental aspect comes, I say, in verse 12 and following. So I come to my third principle, which is this. This verse does not deal directly with the question of our holy living and sanctification. But it does introduce us to a truth that will lead on to that and which promotes that in a most wonderful manner. Verse 11, I say, has nothing to do directly with sanctification. But indirectly, it is a most important verse with regard to the whole question. There are my three principles. Do hold them in your minds. They are so important. Non-experimental. What it is asserting is that what is true of him is true of us. Well, now, you see, his experience doesn't come in at all. He was always holy. He never had any sin at all. So get rid of the whole notion of experience. It is the comparison, the likewise, also, of what happened to him has happened to us. Very well, we can come to the detailed exposition. Let's start with the word reckon. What does this word mean? Well, it really means to regard one as something. To regard one as something. Or if you prefer it, it means to consider. The apostle in saying, reckon ye also yourselves, is saying, consider yourself to be what you are. That would be quite a good translation. Or a better one perhaps would be this. Consider and keep before you. That, that idea is in it. You've got to go on reckoning. Consider and keep constantly before you this truth about yourself. Or another very good way of translating it is to say it means conclude. Draw the deduction. In the light of what I've been saying, gather or draw the deduction. Conclude. That, that's quite a good translation of this word reckon. Now, it's a very interesting thing, this. This word reckon here in this 11th verse of this chapter is exactly the word that the apostle used in chapter 4 in a whole series of verses. Take them down, you Bible students, and work them out. It's exactly the same word that he uses in chapter 4 in verse 3. Listen, what the scripture, for what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God. And it was counted unto him. Counted. That's exactly the word the apostle used. It's the same word, translated here, reckon, translated there, counted. It's precisely the same word. It was counted unto him for righteousness. You'll find the same word also in verses 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, 22, 23, and 24. 
in all those verses in chapter 4 it is precisely the word that is used here sometimes it's translated counted sometimes it's translated imputed and so on but it is also the same word which you find in chapter 3 of this epistle in verse 28 and this is an important use of it the apostle has been arguing out this matter of justification by faith how it isn't the deeds of the law and so on and here he is in verse 28 of chapter 3 summing up his argument and says therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law we conclude it's exactly the same word he might have said therefore we reckon he used the very word that he uses here in chapter 6 in verse 11 this, he says, is the conclusion, therefore, at which we arrive. We conclude. This, then, is the connotation of the meaning, the connotation of this word, reckon. I'm emphasizing it for this reason. That there have been people, you know, who have regarded this 11th verse of the 6th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews as a sort of example of kuaism people persuading themselves that something is true of them which isn't true of them. Every day and in every way I am getting better and better. Kuism. You say that to yourself and you'll begin to feel a little bit better. And people have interpreted Romans 6.11 in that way. Oh, it, it's, a, it's a travesty of it completely. It's not something you persuade yourself about psychologically. It's a conclusion. It's a deduction. It's a bit of logic. It's the inevitable result of the truths that he's been laying down. It's the opposite of coism. Get rid of that notion once and forever. No, no, it means this. That you accept God's word and draw the inevitable conclusion from it. Do what Abram did. When God came to him at the age of 99 and Sarah was over 90 and said to them, you're going to conceive and bear a son. It sounded monstrous, it sounded impossible, but Abraham believed God. Because God said it, Abraham believed it, in spite of everything to the contrary. That's it. Abraham, you see, reckoned that what God said was true. Abraham reckoned and came to the conclusion that what God had promised God could also surely perform. That's it. He drew the conclusion. He came to the solemn conclusion. It's not a bit of coism, but it's a, a bit of logic that is based upon the veracity of the word of God. That's the whole context of this term. Acceptance of God's word and drawing the inevitable deductions from it. Reckon. Then I must say just a, a passing word about ye yourselves. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Now then, who is this self that he's talking about? Yourself. I've already been explaining this. Let me just remind you of it. This means your essential personality. You yourself. We'll have to deal with this in greater detail when we come to chapter 7. But he means by you yourself. This distinct personality that God has given to you and to me that makes us all separate and different people, the individuals that we are. I was once a man in Adam. I was once in Adam. 
I am no longer in Adam, but I am in Christ. You see, I can talk about the old men and the new men, but I, myself, can look on at the two, as it were. It is my being, my entity. That's what he means here. Reckon ye also yourselves, you, this being that you are, that came from God and will go back and stand before God, you, your own individuality and identity, yourself, your personality, reckon that you yourself are dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God in Jesus, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Very well, that brings me to the third expression, which I've just quoted. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, I read here, in this authorized translation. It's a great pity that it's translated like this. The authorized translation is unfortunate here. Indeed, it's wrong. What Paul wrote was this. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God in, in, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Not through him, not by him, but in him. Oh, what a world of difference there is there. Those of you who are attending then will remember that when we were doing verse 10 of chapter 5, I made a very big point of this. Verse 10 of chapter 5 reads like this in this authorized translation. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how much more being reconciled shall we be saved by his life? But I was at great pains to say that it isn't by his life. It is in his life. He's already started there on this great doctrine that he's followed through the remainder of chapter 5 and in all these first 10 verses of chapter 6. In Christ Jesus, how much more shall we be saved? In his life. And as we've been seeing at length in doing this sixth chapter, his basic argument is all along that we who are Christians are not merely forgiven because of what Christ has done for us. We have been united to Christ. We are joined to Christ. We are indeed in Christ. And he is in us. In Christ Jesus. He is the vine. We are the branches. We are in him. A part of him. That's the whole basis of his argument. And here, therefore, you see, he says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. Why? Well, because you are in Christ Jesus. That's the whole reason why you are dead and alive, because you are in Christ Jesus. Very well, then, that brings me to the fourth matter, which is, of course, the practical one. What are we, then, to realize as being true of us in the Lord Jesus Christ? What is this thing that I've got to conclude and reckon and always hold before me? Well, the first thing is this, that we are dead indeed unto sin. We've seen that he was dead indeed unto sin. He is. He died unto sin once. He's no longer dead. He is living unto God. He is dead indeed unto sin, so are you, says Paul. 
if you're in him. You must be. If you're in him and joined to him, what's true of him is true of you. So you are dead indeed unto sin. Notice that I'm emphasizing unto. You remember we saw about him. In that he died, he died not to sin, but he died unto sin. I made a great point of that last week, didn't I? That you mustn't say that Christ died to sin. Oh no, he never had any need to die to sin. He died unto sin. He died to his relationship to sin. The same word is used of us. It doesn't say reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Reckon ye also yourselves likewise to be dead unto sin. As it was unto in his case, it is unto in our case. And that, you see, helps to determine the interpretation. What does it mean then? What, what does it mean when I am told that I must reckon myself to be dead indeed unto sin? Let me tell you first of all what it doesn't mean. No verse perhaps has been so abused and misinterpreted as this one. Here are some of the things it does not mean. It doesn't mean that it is my duty in view of my profession of faith and in view of my vows as a Christian to die unto sin. Now there are some people who have interpreted this verse like that. That the apostle is saying, now look here, you claim that you believe that Christ died for your sins and that you're forgiven by God because he died for your sins, that you're justified by faith. Therefore, can't you see that it's your duty to be dead indeed unto sin? Well, surely the answer to that is that the whole context turns it down. The very fact that what is true of me is what is already primarily true of him makes that a sheer impossibility. The interpretation here must conform to what we have seen to be true about him. Secondly, it isn't a command to me to die or to be dead to sin. Many have interpreted it like that. That it's just a commandment telling Christian people that they must die to sin because of what Christ has done for them. No, it doesn't mean that. Thirdly, it does not mean that I am to reckon that sin as a force in me is dead. And that I, because I am a Christian of all, together finished with sin. Why doesn't it mean that? Well, because sin was never a force like that in the life and experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I'm told here is something that is likewise true of me as it was of him. Also true of me as it was of him. That was never true of him. So it cannot mean that. But not only cannot it mean that if I said that I would be uttering a lie. If I am told to say to myself that sin as a power is dead in me and that it doesn't exist and that as I go on saying that I won't sin and fall to its power, well, I'm trying to cure myself by telling myself a lie. I'm saying to myself that something isn't there which I know perfectly well is there. That's not true. That's just false. Neither does it mean this. That sin is dead, or that sin has been eradicated out of me. 
For the simple answer to that proposition is that sin is not dead. It's very much alive. And that sin has not been eradicated, rooted right out of our constitution, because we know perfectly well that it is still here in our flesh, in our bodies. So it doesn't teach eradication. Neither is it a statement to the effect that we are dead indeed to sin as long as or while we are having a victory over sin. Now that's a very popular and common interpretation of it. They say, reckon yourself to be dead indeed unto sin. And as long as you go on doing that, you'll be having a victory. And as long as you have your victory, sin is really dead as far as you are concerned. It doesn't mean that. Because again, the whole analogy with our Lord makes it an utter impossibility. It cannot be true. In any case, you see, you've already become experimental. And as I've been pointing out, it cannot be experimental because of the parallel with our Lord. But that is how this verse is commonly interpreted. It's generally taken in an experimental sense. We are told now then the way to get your victory is just to say this to yourself. And you go on reckoning it. That you say to yourself, sin isn't there as far as I'm concerned. Since I've become a Christian, sin is really non-existent for me. And you go on saying that and as long as you say it, you'll get your victory. That isn't what the verse is saying at all. It isn't dealing with my experience or with my daily life and living. Or finally, it is not saying that it is my reckoning of this fact that makes me dead unto sin. Many have interpreted it like that. They say, you know, if you reckon this, you will indeed be dead unto sin. The apostle is actually saying the exact opposite of that. What is he saying? Well, positively, this is what it means. We are to reckon not something that we want to be true about ourselves, but something that is true of ourselves. Reckon yourselves, he says, because of your union with Christ to be dead. Realize, he says, conclude that you are already dead unto sin because Christ is dead unto sin. He's taken all this trouble to tell us in detail what is true of the Lord himself because he's going to tell us that what is true of him is true of us. I am to reckon, therefore, not something that I want to be true, something that is true. It isn't my reckoning that does this for me. No, no, this thing has already been done for me by another. I am to reckon something that is already a fact. And the fact is that because I am united to Christ and from the moment I became united to him, I am already dead to sin, to the law, to death itself. So I am to reckon on something that is already a fact, something that has already happened. And this something that has already happened is not something that I do. It isn't my reckoning that brings it into being. This, my death to sin, is something that has been accomplished for me by the Lord Jesus Christ who died unto sin once. And I've come into it because of the work of the Holy Spirit who baptizes me into Christ. And as he baptizes me into Christ, 
I am in Christ and I reap all these consequences of what has happened to him. So it isn't telling me to do anything at all. It is just telling me to realize what has been done for me once and forever by the Lord Jesus Christ. When he died unto sin once, I with him died unto sin once and forever. That's what I've got to keep on holding before myself. Now you see that as I said, this is not something experimental. This isn't something that tells me anything about my experience. Well, what does it tell me? It tells me something about my position, my standing, my whole status. What it talks about is the realm in which I am. He was once in the realm of sin and death. He's no longer there. I was once in the realm of sin and death. Everybody who is not a Christian is in the realm of sin and death, is under the dominion of sin, is under the dominion of Satan, is under the dominion of death, belongs to the darkness, belongs to the kingdom of Satan. That's the realm to which such a person belongs. What the apostle is telling me here is this, that Christ belonged to that for a while. He no longer does. He's out of it. He says, you no longer belong to it either. You've been taken out of it with him because you are in him. Once, well, I'm sorry, my time has gone. Perhaps I'd better leave it at this. Perhaps that's a good point at which to stop. I'm sorry I'd been concealing this clock with my notes and you know I sometimes wish that I could permanently conceal it. But I know that many of you have distances to travel and trains to catch. And please forgive me that I've gone belong, well beyond my allotted time. Let me just leave it at that this evening. And then I'll start next, next Friday, God willing, by working it out in detail with you. But here is the big thing. You and I have got to reckon on this thing which is a fact. It is a truth about us. Not experience. But the word of God comes to us and tells us that if we are Christians at all, well then by the action of the Holy Spirit we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, what is true to say about him in his relationship to sin and death is equally true about us in our relationship to sin and death. Therefore, I am to realize, to believe, to reckon, to hold it constantly before me that as he died unto sin once and for all, so have I. I am no longer in the realm of sin and death. I belong to this other realm. As I shall show you, I am alive unto God. Not experience, but my standing, my position, my status, the realm in which I, myself, now live. Well, God willing, I say, we shall go on further with this next Friday evening. Let us pray. God, we come back unto thee, and we can but prostrate ourselves before thee in wonder, love, and praise as we face this staggering truth.
this amazing truth which tells us this momentous fact about ourselves. Oh God, we can but say that such a truth befits such a God. All thy ways a godlike, matchless, and divine. But the fair glories of thy grace, more godlike and unrivaled, shine. We thank thee for the privilege of being allowed to meet together to consider such a shining and a glorious truth. O oh God, deliver us from unbelief, from sinful unbelief that staggers at thy truth, but give us more and more, we pray thee in its fullness, the faith of Abraham, our father in the faith, that we, like he, shall believe the impossible and glory in it, and then proceed to find it becoming true in experience and in events. O oh God, receive our unworthy praise and thanksgiving, and hear us as we commit ourselves to thee once more, and ask that thou wouldest follow us with thy gracious blessing. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us, now this night and evermore. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.